I have been a friend of uh, Northlands for about 25 years. I was here as early as the days when you guys had two facilities and were uh, fiber optic cabling, a duet sung at two different locations for the congregations. I've had the opportunity to speak at a couple of marriage retreats here. And every, every time I'm in town, I just continue to be impressed with your church's passion for friendship, creating a space to study the Bible, ask questions, and discover what purpose we were made for. And my, my incredible honor to be here today and my introduction to your church came from my longtime friendship with Danny Gordon, one of your elders. He and I have been friends for 30 plus years, and Danny and I and our wife, Nicole and Beth, learned how to be the church together when we were in our 20s. In fact, uh, Danny introduced me to Pastor Josh, we've gotten to be friends, and it's been amazing to see what God is doing here through, through Northland 2.0. See, I met Danny years ago. I was in my 20s. I was a youth pastor. He'd moved to Atlanta, and we were up in Atlanta. That's Danny when he was young, by the way. If you've never seen Danny young, that's what he looks like there, with him and his wife. And, and we raised our kids together. It's my daughter, Sierra, top left. That's Grayson, if you ever met Grayson Gordon. And that's uh, Ashton. You probably saw her and her ballet team a few weeks ago. And we just had that, that experience you have with, with friendship, right? What the church is meant to be. You, you're, you're laughing together. You're interacting together. You're growing together. He taught us worship as a, a volunteer on our youth team. And it was just exciting to have that kind of experience together. And I learned that Danny is the kind of guy you can trust with anything after 30 years of friendship. Well... Maybe anything except handling a barbecue in the backyard. Can I tell you, he's not really good at that if you've never seen it. We're in our 20s. He decides to get a, a charcoal with the lighter fluid all over it. He gets that all burning. We are hungry like that. I haven't eaten a while hungry. He fires up these hamburgers. Oh, my goodness. They look delicious. We kind of scurry over. We grab that hamburger, put it on a, a bun, and we put that in our mouth. Oh. Mmm. What happened? Did you know that when you have a charcoal with lighter fluid, you have to let the lighter fluid burn off before you cook stuff? Danny's like, how's those, how's those, how's those burgers? Oh, there's something. <laughs> and we chowed down those burgers all the way in for the next 72 hours. We were like burping and hiccuping lighter fluid. We referred to those as Gordon's butane burgers. So, as one of uh, your elders, don't you, you can trust him with anything, but don't trust him with a barbecue. Well, a couple years ago, we got the opportunity to go on a sailing trip together. And so Danny and Nicole and Beth and I sailed out to a place called the Dry Tortugas out in the Gulf. If you've never been there, right in the middle of it is a fort called Fort Jefferson. And this, this fort has been there since Thomas Jefferson's days, and it actually was the Pentagon to protect the Gulf of Mexico for the United States. It's never been overcome from the outside. A ship tries to attack that thing, it can aim 100 cannons at you at once. Never been overcome from the outside. However, it has been overtaken from the inside. Hunger, famine, and sickness. 
And as you guys have been going through the book of Acts, you have seen God's incredible community, this, this space designed to house God's people and grow to house more and invite more in. And it has been coming under attack from the outside. There's been persecution from the outside. The church responds and it grows. Attacks from the outside, it responds and it grows. But last week you saw the first attack from the inside. Deception through Ananias and Sapphira. And now, will that eat the fork? Will that eat it from the inside out? And then there's going to be persecution again from the outside. And now we get to chapter 6. And in chapter 6 of Acts, we have another attack from the inside. And the way the leaders respond to this transforms the church. And again, it grows to house more people as more people find faith in God. See, the same fort that can handle the battering ram can often be eaten by termites. And there is a termite that's going to be deposited in the church in this chapter. And if it's not dealt with, this same termite that affected them so many years ago can affect you and I today. It affects our marriages. It affects our communities. This termite that they diagnose and deal with can help all of us overcome the termites in our life. If you have a Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 6. Let's see what's happening here with the, the church and how they respond and how we can find our worth in whatever it is they find here in this passage. So in Acts chapter 6, we begin with these words. Now in those days, after the persecution had just come strong again in chapter 5, when the number of disciples were multiplying, <laughs> growing, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Ooh, we've got two different factions now. They're seeing each other, not as a church, but two different groups. Because their widows, oh, some people are yours, some people are theirs, this division, were neglected in the daily distribution. So the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, let's seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, and notice how many times the word full is used in this passage. Full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we were going to continue to focus on giving ourselves continually to, the, to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, full of faith, full of Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Marmanus, and Nicholas, a proselyte, from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And then having dealt with this, this, this attack from the inside, again, the word of God spread, the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Sounds like they got a cafeteria problem. Just a bunch of people not getting enough food. Why are they choosing seven of the most highly qualified leaders full of the Holy Spirit and full of God's grace and full of God's wisdom to deal with a food problem? Because they recognize there's something far more sinister at work here that they have to get to the bottom of. It's what I'm going to call the termite of identity. The termite of identity is that every culture that's ever existed through time and space will come to you and come to me and give us something to build our identity on a caste system. And that caste system will say, you're important because of the money you have, or the job you have, or the amount of money in your savings account, or how many people like you. Every culture will try and cast you into its caste system. And when it does, 
It'll tell you when you can feel good about yourself and when you shouldn't feel good about yourself. And then you'll start to evaluate other people based on that caste system. Let me show you where it shows up in the text here. Now it says, in those days, if you go back just a few verses, the, the disciples have just discovered that they got a chance to be persecuted for Jesus' sake and they're thanking God for the opportunity. God, thank you. You worshiped us. You worshiped God by suffering for us. We can worship you by suffering for you. And right after that, we come into the next verse. In those days, the number of disciples is multiplying, and there rose a complaint between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Well, the church is not divided into people who had a Greek influence and people who had a Jewish influence, but there's this divisiveness coming in that people start seeing themselves as the Hebrew part of the church or the Hellenist part of the church. And this idea is going to be so invasive that the, 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 the apostles are going to say, we got to get to the bottom of this and get to the bottom of it now. What do I mean by a caste system? Well, there's a religious caste system that the Hebrews had. I grew up Jewish. I went to synagogue. And because of that, I've I'm a little bit better than the Gentiles. And it's creating self-superiority and self-righteousness in them, this caste system, that if you went to synagogue, you're maybe a little bit closer to God than those who didn't grow up going to synagogue. But the word Hellenism may not ring a bell to you, but Hellenism was a caste system that Alexander the Great had put in place that is now infiltrating the church. What is that caste system? Well, when Hellenism came into being, it basically said that you are defined by, your worth is defined by, and other people's worth is defined by where they are in this socioeconomic system. Are you a patrician? Or are you a flebian? Are you a freedman? Or are you a slave? And as the church is being to take on this divisive caste system, what happens in this caste system is that you envy the people above you and you look down on the people beneath you. And it starts creating division. I'm a Hebrew. I'm a Hellenist. More than that, these are my widows, and those are your widows. And the reason the leader is going to take this so seriously is because this caste system is total contradiction to what the Bible says, that you find your value and you find your worth, not some, some arbitrary system imposed upon you by the culture. You can find your value from the creator of the universe. So every time Alexander the Great came to town, he would set up four things. A theater, a university, a marketplace, and a gymnasium. And when he set up these four things, he said, you are valuable based on your ability to get value from these four areas. Number one, the theater. How many people like you or applaud you? How many people think you're important? Well, that doesn't sound like 2,000 years ago. Today, our, our culture tells us you're valuable based on how well-liked you are, how many likes you have, how many people applaud you at the end of a, of a performance. Maybe you don't relate to that. Maybe you find your value from the Hellenistic way of the marketplace. I am my job. I am my career. I am that deal I just closed. I'm only as good as the next deal I will close. Maybe it's university. I am what I know. I am the degrees, the letters next to my name. Or lastly, the gymnasium. I am my athletic accomplishments. You see, this caste system of Hellenism was beginning to infiltrate the church. And this is not where God wants you to find your value. 
Can I tell you, you are so much more valuable than the job you have, the title you have, and you're so much more than the title you don't have. And rather than envying people above you or looking down on people beneath you, the church says, we've got to come against these caste systems, this religious caste system that's making religious people feel better than the the Gentiles, and this Gentile caste system that's putting people into different categories. We've got to deal with the caste system. It's a termite of identity. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. So what do they do? They're so concerned about this divisiveness that's happening in the church between the Hebrews and the Hellenists that they say, it's not desirable for us to do this because we've got to stay focused on the word and prayer. But let's summon seven people together. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom you may appoint over this business. And we're going to give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now, the ministry of the word in this business, how does the message of the Bible knock down this religious caste system and this cultural caste system? Why are they seeking out to do this business? Why do they need people full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom? Because here's what the Bible says. Everyone you ever meet is a descendant of Adam. That's a message that doesn't divide, it brings us together. Everyone you ever meet is a descendant of Noah. And against the religious system that thinks you might be better than people because you obey a few rules better than them or you grew up in synagogue, the Bible says we're all equally in trouble. (laughs) We're all equally humbled. Even if you think you're a better parent than somebody else, you're woefully, woefully, woefully away from God's standard. And so the Bible message comes and humbles you. It says you're far more than your title and your titles don't get you any closer to God anyway. You're far more than the money you make. Whether you got a little or you got a lot, we all have a common enemy. And the common enemy is all human beings face death. And your money and your fame and your applause and your reputations aren't going to scare the grim reaper. And so the Bible humbles everyone, the self-righteous, and the person who's got their important title patrician in the caste system. And then rather than being elevated by something you've done or what you've done or the deal you closed, in the Bible you get fully elevated that you are now a child of God. That's the message of the church. What would you rather be? The child of the son of God? Or would you rather be, I got a big title because I sell widgets? There's nothing wrong with selling widgets. There's nothing wrong with having people like you. But what the Bible offers humbles you more than anything else and exalts you higher than anything else. And that's why these leaders are so seriously taking on this caste system. I'll give you an example. I I pastored a a church, a multiracial church, about an hour south of Atlanta. And tragically, they were still practicing separate but equal school systems in the early 90s. I was shocked. And they force integration into the school system, but if you talk to the teachers and the principals and the superintendents that went to our, our church, they said you'd still come to cafeteria and see African Americans at, at certain tables and Hispanic at certain tables and Caucasians at certain tables. But over time, the elementary school and high school, you began to see these integrated tables in the middle. And the teacher said it was always people from our church who weren't sitting next to black friends or white friends or Hispanic friends, they're sitting back to friends. And the integration of the gospel that brings people together, it doesn't divide. It it says we are commonly have the same problem of death and commonly have the same solution, resurrection, and we humbly love one another and care for one another and serve one another. Our music director, Ed Smith, his dad had really busted through the glass ceiling 
in a lot of ways in our community. He became the first black superintendent and, and really had a huge impact in our community. Well, he passed away and we went to his funeral. And I'll never forget visiting his funeral because when we arrived there, we were a little bit late because this was like, you know, we got to the boondocks, went past the boondocks to the edge of the earth and we fell off and we got to this place. And when we arrived, we go up to the top and we were about the only Caucasians there and we were just, you know, mourning and grieving with our friend Ed and his family. And they got the casket down there and people are singing Amazing Grace and the pastor's got some words. Well, meanwhile, we're, we're getting in a little bit late. We're, we're, we're kind of finding our seats. There's this two rows in a balcony. We are right next to the roof line. And there is a swarm of wasps about 30 feet from us. And they're coming closer and closer. And they're like tracker jackers. These things are so big. Charles was sitting behind me. He says, guys, we are in the middle of nowhere. I didn't bring my EpiPen. And if I get stung by that, I'm going to die. Immediately, we're not focused on anything else going on except our friend is facing death. So I go, Charles, you got to just get out of here. He's like, I know, I think I will. He gets up to go, and it's like the wasps heard him. One of the wasps dive bombs down, coming right at him. Meanwhile, the funeral's going on. We grab a hymnal. Wham! We smack that wasp. Hits the glass right over Charles' shoulder. And because we're a row in front of him, we're now turned around. We can see Charles. We can see the glass. We can see the dead wasp. And it twitches. And it twitches. And my buddy David, the senior pastor at the time, he sees our friend facing death, but he can't tell that the, that the wasp, he can't see the w- w- watch out of his peripheral view. So my, my friend suddenly yells to save his friend's life in the middle of a funeral, he's alive, he's alive! <laughs> it's that moment where the music stopped and no one was talking. Everybody turns up and is looking at like, um, what are those white preachers doing talking about resurrection in the balcony there? And, and being the good friend I am, I suddenly tied my shoe so nobody could see me and I'm pointing he did it he did it afterwards Ed and Lewis like what was going on up there and we told them the story and this wasn't a device we we have laughed about that story it's a reminder what brings us together is not our skin color it's not the money we make it's not who likes us or some socioeconomic pyramid applied by our our culture we are brought together by our our common enemy death and our common answer resurrection So how's the church going to deal with this? Well, I'll give you four steps. Step number one, the treatment for this cultural construct that was infiltrating the church is number one, you got to inspect, not neglect the problem. You say, ah, it's just a cafeteria problem. No, they, they say it's far more than that. Oh, no, no, this is, this is a generosity problem. No, no, it's far more than that. This is a different way of thinking about where you find your identity. And I've talked to Danny and Pastor Josh about the ways that you guys have led the church over the last several years to say we have got to get focused on the gospel and the primary message of the gospel, what it means to unify it or what that message means. I've been so proud of your church. But look what they do. They say we are not going to, to neglect this problem. We are going to inspect it. We're going to dig down on this. We're going to find out what's going on here. They say seek out, right? Let's say in the passage, seek out men. Seek out leaders. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Look at the qualifications here. They're full of the Holy Spirit. They're full of wisdom, whom we may appoint over a business. This is an important thing we gotta understand. We gotta get to the bottom of this. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying, please, the whole multitude, they're taking this seriously. This divisiveness is gonna break up our church if we don't deal with it. 
So how about you? Before we see how the church dealt with it in detail, are you dealing with your own caste system? And how would we? Here's how you know if you start to build your identity on some caste system from the culture. A religious caste system or a secular one. You start sensing and feeling self-righteousness and pride coming out of you. Don't neglect it when you see it. Don't neglect it when other people mention it like your spouse or your boss or coworker. It's easy to neglect it rather than to inspect it. Now here's the problem. Everybody else's cultural construct sounds silly, but not yours. So I'm gonna share my silly one, and you're gonna find it ridiculous, but you have one too, so don't get too smug. You see, I'm a hard worker, I'm an incredibly efficient. Because I'm very efficient, I feel like because I'm efficient, somehow I'm better than people who are inefficient, which makes me feel better than those people who can't drive the car. Or those people who can't get me my order at, at Starbucks quick enough, right? And so I, because I'm efficient, can look down at people who are more inefficient. And I'm a thrower. Are you a saver? Oh, don't you know that you got to throw that stuff away in your garage? So as a thrower, I judge the saver. But don't worry, as a saver, you're now judging me as a thrower. Self-righteousness from building your identity on some ridiculous construct. I'll give you an example. My friend Craig, we're in our 20s. He has these boxes he wants us to move as he goes from apartment to apartment to apartment to several years later into a house. I show up to his house, delighted, honestly, to help him move. Craig, we're here to help move. I'm grabbing a box. Holy cow, what is in this thing? He says, my entire collection of National Geographic's going back to 1950. When's the last time you've opened it and looked at it? I might any day now. Oh man, I'm judging, right? This is inefficient, things aren't labeled. Oh my goodness, you're wasting my time, but that's fine. First trip, I, I moved it to the next apartment. Six months later, he moved again. Called me up, thought donuts was enough. Come back over to his apartment, grab these same boxes, he hasn't thrown any of them away. Is this still the National Geographic? Yes. I grabbed a marker. Things I should have thrown away. <laughs> Put it in the car. Grab the next one, just as heavy. Grab the marker, Janice's underwear. Third time, we moved into his house. Unfinished basement, we set all these National Geographic boxes. I'm like, I'm never moving this again. I come about a few weeks later, there's a, there's a uh, little celebration of him being in the home, and I say, hey, how's the new home going? He says, oh, it's great, except for the termites. You have termites? Yeah, we're getting inspection done. So you're not gonna believe it, come here. He doesn't know how self-righteous I felt about these stupid National Geographics. I kept it to myself because I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'll pray for you. <laughs> we go down to the unfinished basement, and oh my goodness, does God answer prayer? The termites missed the whole house. They walked across the concrete slab, and they found this delicious buffet of National Geographic, and they ate a hole from the bottom up. Praise Jesus, right? Ah. As silly as that is, a caste system that made me feel better than someone else because I throw and they save. As I'm efficient and they're not, because you parent in a way they don't, seek out the termites when you see self-righteousness. Second thing you'll find is bitterness. Especially from a religious caste system, you'll get bitter at God because he owes you good circumstances because of how good of a person you are. 
You'll get bitter at other people because you would never do that sin. You, You don't give into that temptation. How dare somebody do that? I had an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old, and God was prompting us to be open to adoption. So we met Jackie. Jackie was 19, single mom. She'd walked her way into an abortion clinic and cried her way out because she wanted to choose life. But she didn't know what she was going to do. I was excited because I got married at 21. I was going to be empty nest at 43. But God was prompting us to adopt her child and start all over again. So this is Jackie on the left with my wife. We would name her son together, Quinn, middle name Jackson, because he's Jackie's son, the birth mother. And we were obeying God. We were doing the right thing, saving a life, going the right way, and, and we're there in the, in the delivery room and holding our child, it was beautiful. And I can notice his eyes bouncing back and forth. The doctor says, don't worry about it, sometimes it happens. Didn't happen with mother two. Two months later, the doctor would tell us our son is incurably blind. And honestly, that's the least of his challenges. Because by year two, we'd find out he has extreme autism, which explains why he bashes his head into the concrete floor 20 times before we can scoop him up. And this unleashed a level of incredible joy for my son Quinn. No one knows how to be as joyful and as in the moment as he does but also unleashed a chaos into my life that I could not possibly begin to explain. And when I found out that his autism and his blindness might have been caused by her drug use, not only did I feel self-righteous, I felt bitter at God. God, I was willing to do the right thing and restart my freedom and now I'm never gonna be free. Angry at God and angry at her because I wouldn't have done that. I've never did drugs. I'm better than that. Oh God, I didn't get humbled by the gospel enough that I think because I didn't struggle with that drug that suddenly I'm better than someone who does? That somehow God, you owe me because I'm willing to wait for emptiness another 15 years? Where's that come from? Inspect, don't neglect when you see self-righteousness from these caste systems. And that is why the church takes this so seriously. They realize this is more than a cafeteria problem, it's an identity problem. So number two, internal problems require internal solutions. Because other people are watching how you treat people who are different from you, people of different races than you, people of different temptations than you. They're watching you. And are you dealing with your own inner issues and how you interact with other people? Look what they do. Look at how many times again it uses the word full. It says, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith. If it's just a cafeteria problem, just get anybody to hand out some food for crying out loud. No, they want somebody who's full of this identity. I know how to find my worth fully humbled by the gospel, fully exalted by the gospel. Full of the Holy Spirit. I know what it is to find my identity, not from some arbitrary religious system that produces pride or some arbitrary secular system that creates division. I am full of the Holy Spirit. I know that I am my creators. And then they chose these other guys. Look at these names. Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas. Now all of these guys are Jews, except the last one, who have been Hellenized, meaning they grew up in a Greek culture. They're saying, we're going to take Jewish people who grew up in a Greek culture to lead this thing to show whether you're Greek or Jew, we're all in the body of Christ. That's why they chose these guys. They knew this new identity. They knew this new value system. And the last guy says he's a proselyte. 
Nicholas, he was actually a Gentile. They put a Gentile on this team. And you're gonna find through the rest of the book of Acts, there's gonna be a real challenge to say, oh my goodness, Jews, aren't we better than the Gentiles? Can the Gentiles really get into this thing? They're coming at the problem with people who've internally understood who they are in God and who they are in Christ. Now what is a proselyte from Antioch that they're laying hands on them? What does that even mean? A proselyte is somebody who's converted in from one value system to another value system. He grew up as a Gentile in the Hellenistic system. Here's who you are in your socioeconomic, here's where you're valuable, here's how you judge other people. He converted in as a proselyte to Judaism and then converted into Christianity. He says, oh, I wanna find my value from something more than this arbitrary cultural system. So there's actually archeological evidence of these proselytes. They're called ossuaries or bone boxes. You come across a bone box and it shows that during that time period, this is a box, you would, almost like a coffin, but they put their bones in it. And it would say the ossuary of the proselyte Nicodemus. And it would say this was a person who was a Gentile who converted into this value system. Now, all kinds of evidence that these things existed, which is why the Bible is not some fictional story or myth, it's actual history. We have evidence to support it. But if you were a proselyte, the first thing you did after adopting or believing this new value system, humbling it and letting it exalt you, is you would go to mikvah and get baptized or washed. Now, if you've never seen a mikvah before, here's what they look like. And so Jewish people would use a mikvah to wash themselves before synagogue. The Christians started using this as a way to show that you've been washed by Jesus. And this is why this was so profound. Because this was a picture of why the gospel deals with both of these caste systems. When you go under the water, it was a sign that you were bearing all your bad deeds. Oh, I know the bad stuff I did. I know how selfish I've done. I know the secrets other people don't know. But you bury it. It's all been forgiven. You can find forgiveness. You can be guilt-free and condemnation-free. You bury all your bad works. But you also bury all your good works. Because your good works are like filthy rags. So just because you're a better mom than somebody else or don't struggle with a particular temptation, you bury all your good deeds because they are woefully inadequate to get you to heaven. And because you're bearing under the water your bad deeds and your good deeds, it humbles everybody. And then you come up out of the water as a picture of who you are in Christ. I've got a brand new identity, a brand new value system, a brand new way of thinking about everybody. Which is everybody is, is made by God and everybody, God wants to adopt everybody in his family. That is what the picture was. And so these people who are full of faith and it's proselyte, he knows what it's like to go from one value system to another value system. And then having experienced this new value from God, you would go to temple and you'd offer a sacrifice to say, God, thank you. Thank you for what you've given me that I couldn't earn my own. See how that humbles you? Religious people and rebellious people. And it's out of that we get to the third part of the treatment. Serving well is the well that serves the church. You see, you don't serve God or serve others to make up for the bad things you've done as, as if I just help enough old ladies across the street, it'll make up for the, for the, for the lusting and the, and the lying and the unkindness I've done. No, 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 no. I serve not to make up for my bad deeds, but I, I serve because he forgave me my, dad, my bad deeds and I want to serve others the way God served me. I also don't serve out of my good deeds to say, I got to get my resume together to make sure I can get into heaven. No, 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 no. I handed God my resume. 
And he handed me his resume. I don't need to add to my resume anymore. I got the best resume in the universe now in Christ. So now I serve others out of the absolute confidence of who I am in God. And so serving well becomes the well to serve the church. So let's go back to the first verse for a second. What's really going on here with this caste system? Look what it says. It says, a complaint rose against the Hebrews and Hellenists because their widows were neglected in daily distribution. But it's interesting, there's no Greek word for food here. So it seems like it's more than a cafeteria problem. Then when the disciples say, we're not gonna leave the word of God and serve tables, it doesn't use the typical word for an eating table, but a four-legged banking table. In fact, the Greek word there is trapeza. It's the same word used for banks today which means the service that was needed in God's church were people who could serve, yes, by supplying food and and clothing, but there's something bigger there. This is a whole business, a whole ministry. They need people with financial skills and leadership skills to say, I gotta come in here and I gotta add some leadership gifts to this business. There's a banking aspect to it. There's a whole ministry at play here that they need to call people to serve. And so maybe you've got help gifts and you wanna help serve food, that's awesome. Maybe you've got strategic financial gifts. This is also a place you could be a deacon to say, I don't need part of that. I was talking with Danny and Pastor Josh. They're going to revise your guys' deacon ministry to say, who in our church feels called to be part of what God is doing here with their financial gifts, with their leadership gifts? But the other big problem seems to be here that there's a language barrier. Most of the disciples didn't speak Greek. Matthew probably did. Peter probably did. Philip probably did. But the rest didn't. So you have all these Greek-speaking Hebrew Hellenists who can't talk real well to the non-Greek-speaking Hebrews. So they chose a group of deacons who had language skills. What are the skills you have that God has called you to this place to serve in? Financial skills? Leadership skills? Helping serving skills? Bilingual skills? God wants to use you to serve this place out of this new identity. And look at the names of those disciples, these seven people that they pick. Look how diverse those names are. Stephen's name means crowned. He's going to stand before a group of people who are throwing stones at him. He doesn't find his identity from the applause of others. He finds it from looking at the one and saying, I've been crowned by the the king of the universe. That's my value. And I'm going to tell you how incredible it is. Wow, that's courage. The next person's name is lover of horses. Their passion was horses. Maybe your passion is a single mom. Maybe your passion is special needs. God has a passion he's put in you and he wants you to serve well here out of this incredible identity given to you by God so you can serve people who are different from you, people who struggle with different things than you do, and you can say there is a way, there is is a way you can find a God who can forgive you and give you purpose and meaning like he has to me. Look at all those names, honorable, abiding. Maybe they're the kind of person that brings people in and can get them to abide or connect or, or quiet their souls to connect with God. My point here is God has given all of us unique names and unique passions. and He's called you to this place to serve well. It will become the well that serves the church. As a special needs dad, I cannot tell you how an how touched I am by what you do for special needs parents. You had a dance last night, the ministry you do, you just cannot imagine how hard it is. And the way you come along and serve people who are in trenches that you'll not understand, it's just 
beautiful. And the last part of the treatment, it's amazing that he ends this way because when you understand this new message, the gospel saves you from your good deeds and your bad deeds as a new identity. Your new identity is saved from both the guilt and condemnation of your bad deeds and the self-righteousness of your good deeds. Look what it says. It says, and now many priests were obedient to the faith. Priests? The church is growing and guess who's coming into the fold? Priests! They don't like Bible knowledge. They don't like religious ritual. They don't like religious routine. But they're being rescued from their religious caste system to say, oh my goodness, I found my identity by how many Bible verses I've I've memorized, by how moral I've been. Oh my goodness, I have got to convert into this new standard of, of thinking. And then right after that, Stephen comes up against another group of religious people who are not converted to the system. They're from the synagogue of the freedmen, it says. Religious people say, no, 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 no. It's got to be about works. It's got to be about works. It's got to be about my righteousness. Not grace, not grace, not grace, not grace. And our archaeologists have found, sure enough, this synagogue of the freedmen, there's actually some, some rocks we have found that have carved. This is the synagogue of the freedmen found from the first century. And they rebuilt a model of Jerusalem during that time. And sure enough, they found the actual location that this synagogue was. And these are people pushing against the message of grace, pushing against the message of Stephen, because they want to build their identity on their religious activity. But the gospel comes to rescue you from your secular caste system and your religious caste system. Think of your life this way. God has put in each one of us a a God-sized hole. It's a God-sized hole in your life, and you can try and fill that up with status and performance and appearance and money. Good luck. Accomplish all your goals, and you're going to find your hole is just too deep. You cannot fill a temporal hole with a temporal thing. God has put an eternal hole in you. It can only be filled by an eternal God. And that's why God came to earth. And when Jesus left, the the story of the Bible is that Jesus went up and the Holy Spirit came down. And when the Holy Spirit came down, he said, I want to put my spirit in you. Remember what we've learned so far? They were full, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of kindness, full of God's value system. God came to fill you up with purpose and meaning and value. And he fills you up, not so that you can just have more Bible studies. He fills you up so he can pour you out in service. Because I've been so filled up with God's forgiveness. I'm having trouble forgiving my enemy, but I'm not better than my enemy because God forgave me as his enemy. So I'm going to go forgive my enemy. I'm going to go serve somebody that I don't like. I'm gonna go and love somebody because God loved me. Oh God, I'm running out of patience. My wife's driving me crazy. I come back, God, fill me up, fill me up. Put more patience in me. I need your patience because my patience is gone. God, teach me how to serve my wife. Teach me how to to love other people. Teach me how to be kind with your kindness. And, And again, I wear out again. I'm like, oh God, help me find my identity again. Help me find the value that I need from you. And God fills us up and fills us up and fills us up so that we can go out and go out and go out. And some of us are introverts and we're like, I'm going out like this, you know, I just, um, just I don't bring no attention to me. Others of us are like me, like, oh, what are we gonna do? What can we produce? How can we be as efficient as possible? How can we change the world for Jesus? And you're saying, I want what God has given to me and I wanna put it in the lives of others. And that is what God has called the church to do. 
This is who we are. It unifies us. This is what God has said. The eternal God of the universe is now living in me. And I want you to know the purpose and the meaning and the humility that comes. I want to be full of wisdom. I want to be full of the Holy Spirit. I want to be full of his love. I don't want to be crushed by, by, by the guilt and condemnation of what I've done wrong. I want to know the joy of living in his kindness. Do you want that in your heart? Do you want a message that brings people together, doesn't divide it in a culture that's always trying to get us mad at everybody else? Maybe you want to welcome the Holy Spirit into that God-sized hole in your heart. Maybe as a Christian, you went, God, I know you're the, the value, but I have switched over to, to trusting stuff and things and titles to get my value. And maybe you want to turn to God and ask for forgiveness. Let me lead you in a prayer. Maybe you just want to say these words to God. Say, Father, I welcome your spirit into my life. Maybe you've been beating yourself up for something you did wrong because it's a really bad thing. I want you to look to the cross. Jesus was beaten enough for what you've done. You're not going to add anything by beating yourself up. Say, God, I'm bearing my dead works. I welcome your Holy Spirit into my heart. And maybe you want to turn and say, God, forgive me for replacing you with some temporal item, Father. Forgive me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Help me find my value in you. Welcome, Holy Spirit, into my heart. Amen.